Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. While it's not unusual these days to hear that somebody has posted something shocking on Twitter. Now, Twitter, for those of you who may not be familiar, is a social media site, social media platform, where users are invited to type out their thoughts on a given subject and then share those thoughts with the people who follow them. And it's not unusual to hear that somebody, some celebrity, politician, famous person, um, has posted something shocking and surprising on Twitter. In fact, sometimes it makes the news, doesn't it? The newscaster will say, so-and-so posted these words on Twitter. Well, six years ago, 2016, there was a gentleman who posted something shocking on Twitter. Um, his name is Johannes Hoschefer. Hoschefer is a professor at Princeton University, and he posted something on Twitter that nobody was expecting, nobody was anticipating. Get this. He posted a resume, not of credentials, not of accomplishments. Rather, he posted a resume of failures. Uh, I'm not sure how well we can see this document, but it's up here on the screen. And if you're curious, um, you can find this document online. Just simply Google Johannes Hoschefer, resume of failures. Uh, but this resume actually goes all the way back to the late 1990s, and it details every degree program that Hoschefer didn't get into, every academic position and fellowship he did not get, and every award and scholarship he did not receive. Um, Hoschefer, remember this guy's a professor, he teaches college students, so he shared this document with his students as a way of normalizing failure. But then he decided to post it on Twitter where it went viral. Uh, ironically, he said, uh, this resume of failures got way more attention than his entire body of academic work. Well, failure tends to be an unpopular subject, doesn't it? Even though failure is a routine part of life, all of us experience failure from time to time, it seems that many of us, maybe all of us, are reluctant to own up to failure. Um, I'm actually reminded of a quote by President John F. Kennedy who said this, success has many fathers and mothers, we might say. Success has many fathers and mothers, but failure is an orphan. Nobody wants to claim it. Isn't that true? That we are okay with claiming success, we are okay with claiming accomplishments and those things that we've done well, but few of us, if any of us, want to claim failure. When I declared my intention of becoming a United Methodist pastor, uh, one of the things I had to do, and Pastor Will had to do this in his journey, and Pastor Barbara did as well, one of the things I had to do was um, interview with what's called the District Committee on Ordained Ministry, the District Committee on ordained ministry. And the purpose of this interview was to assess whether I had a call from God, a call that was genuine, authentic, uh, that the committee could also see, and whether I was a suitable candidate for pastoral ministry, and if so, to move me ahead in the ordination process, which is a pretty long process in our denomination. So I had just finished college. I was going to begin seminary that fall. I was green. I was nervous. 
um, didn't really have a whole lot of experience, and I was just, um, had butterflies in my stomach, my heart was racing, but despite all my nerves during the interview, and I probably had about maybe eight or 10 people around the table ask me questions, I felt like I was doing okay. I, I felt like I was answering the questions appropriately, up until the very end. When this guy asked me this question, I'll never forget this, he asked me this question, and in hindsight, I appreciate it, because he was pushing my self-awareness, but at the time, it just caught me off guard, and it made me freeze up. Has that ever happened to you in an interview? He said, Chris, you've told us about your gifts, but I don't want to hear about all those. I'm going to hear about your failures. Talk about a time in your life when you failed. Time when I failed? To be honest, that wasn't something I reflected on very much at that point in my journey. It seems that none of us want to reflect on our failures. Failures discourage us, they depress us, they bog us down, they make us feel worthless like we don't measure up. But folks, here's what we're going to discover in this message, hopefully what we'll discover in this message. Unless and until we come to terms with our failures, we won't leave any room for the grace that covers and redeems all our failures. Unless and until we come to terms with our failures, we won't leave any room for the grace that covers and redeems all those failures. Uh, we are starting a brand new series of sermons at Asbury this morning, simply entitled, only two words, Grace Encounters. Can you all say this with me? Grace Encounters. Um, and over the next three weeks, uh, what we're going to be doing in these messages is we're going to be looking at three encounters. How many encounters? Three encounters of complete, amazing, absolute grace that we find with people between Jesus and individuals in the fourth gospel, and that would be the gospel of John. Um, as a reminder, there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels tell us the story of Jesus. Well, these grace encounters, we don't find these grace encounters in any gospel except for the gospel of John. They're not in Matthew, they're not in Mark, they're not in Luke. They are only located, only found in the Gospel of John. And we're going to do something a little bit different as we move throughout the sermon series. Instead of starting at the beginning part of the Gospel and moving forward, that's what we would ordinarily do, we're going to start at the end of the Gospel and move backwards. And so the encounter that we're going to look at this morning, it is found at the tail end of the Gospel of John. John 21 uh, the very last chapter, and this encounter involves Peter and the grace that Jesus extended to Peter following Peter's greatest failure. But to really understand and comprehend and appreciate how grace-filled this encounter actually was, we first have to understand all that led up to it. Do y'all remember Peter? Even if you're not a church-going person, maybe this is your first time in church in a long time, there's a good chance you've heard of Peter before, uh, one of Jesus' disciples. But his real name wasn't actually Peter. Do you remember what his real name was? Simon. And so Simon and his brother Andrew, they were fishermen by occupation. That's what they did for work. That's what they did for a living. And the Gospels tell us that one day, these two fishermen, they were fishing along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when all of a sudden they were encountered by this wandering itinerant rabbi named Jesus, and Jesus invited them to be his disciples. He said, you are no longer going to be fishing for fish. Instead, I'm going to have you fish for human beings. And then he singled Simon out, 
and he gave him a new name. He said, you are no longer going to be called Simon. Instead, you're going to be called Peter. Do you know what Peter means? Rock. That's kind of an unusual encounter, isn't it? Uh, I think sometimes we read these stories and we overlook just how unusual this is. Not many of us would be willing to receive a new name from a complete stranger, but Peter was. And actually, the fact that Jesus gave him a new name, that's in keeping with the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, whenever God would call somebody to a new way of life, sometimes what God would do is God would change that person's name. Remember God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so in that spirit, in that vein, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. That was Jesus' way of saying, I've got big plans for you. I've got purposes for you. I've got great things in mind. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I've always suspected, I've had my suspicions, that the other 11 disciples were jealous of Peter and the special kind of relationship that Jesus and Peter shared. For example, do you know that Peter's name is mentioned 200 times? 200 times in all four Gospels. Do you know how many times the names of the other disciples are mentioned? 50 times combined. Not even close. Not to mention the fact that Peter got to do things with Jesus the other disciples never got to do. Only Peter got to walk on water with Jesus. And Jesus also seemed to tell Peter things that he didn't necessarily tell the other disciples. And so if there were an Oscars in the Gospels, some of you like to watch the Oscars, if there were an Oscars in the Gospels, what would Peter have gotten? Peter would have gotten Best Supporting Role. Now, of course, Jesus would have gotten Best Actor, but Peter would have gotten Best Supporting Role. And sure, Peter had his faults. He was impulsive. He misspoke. He lost his temper. He got in the way of Jesus' ministry on a few occasions. But folks, we've got to give credit where credit is due. Peter was extremely faithful and loyal to Jesus, wasn't he? Up until the end, when even the rock crumbled under the weight of fear. Some of us know this story. That on the eve of the crucifixion, just before Jesus' arrest, Jesus and the disciples, all 12 disciples, they're in the upper room. They're sharing the last meal, what we now call the Last Supper. Well, during that supper, things got incredibly awkward when Jesus dropped a bombshell. He said, one of you is going to betray me. Talking there about Judas. And then he said, the rest of you all, you're going to desert me and fall away. Peter spoke up. He corrected Jesus. He said, no, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. Not me. Even if all these other guys desert you and abandon you, I never will. I will follow you wherever you lead me, even if it takes me to death. I've always found that a bit strange. Peter questions the loyalty of 11 disciples, but he doesn't do it behind their back. He does it right in front of their faces. He says, even if these guys follow it, I never will. And that's when Jesus reveals a really hard truth to Peter. He says, Peter, truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, in other words, before morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And sure enough, that's what happens. In fact, John tells us in his gospel, and folks, I want us to remember this detail because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. John tells us in his gospel that Peter, after the arrest, it's late outside, um, it's cold outside, he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. And three times by that charcoal fire, 
somebody approaches Peter, insisting that Peter knows Jesus, and every single time, Peter denies it. He denies knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Folks, this is no accident. This is no minor slip of the tongue. This is intentional rejection of Jesus on Peter's part. The, the other gospel writers tell us that by the third denial, Peter realizes what he has done. He remembers Jesus' words. And he's filled with so much shame and so much bitterness that he goes away weeping bitterly. His heart heavy with the guilt of what he's done. Uh, some of us may have seen the movie. It came out 22 years ago in 2000. Uh, the movie My Dog Skip. Anybody ever seen My Dog Skip before? Well, in the movie, and we have a picture of this on the screen, uh, there's this uh, character, his name is Dink, D-I-N-K. And who's the actor that plays him? Luke Wilson. Well, Dink in the movie, he's the local sports hero. Uh, he is a star athlete. Everybody admires him, everybody looks up to him, everybody wants to be around him. Uh, he is a popular guy. But then what happens during World War II Dink is drafted to fight the Nazis, only he doesn't fight the Nazis. Instead, he loses his courage, and he abandons his fellow soldiers. So he comes back to his community, not as a hero anymore. Instead, people see him, and he sees himself as a coward and a failure. And so he becomes an alcoholic. He becomes the town drunk. He goes to alcohol to drown out his sorrows not hard to imagine Peter in that kind of difficult place. The memory of what Peter did haunted him. Do you know Peter wasn't there at the crucifixion as Jesus was being crucified? Only one of the disciples was there. Do you remember who that was? John. Of course, a bunch of women were there, but only John the disciple was there of the men. Peter also wasn't there to claim the body of Jesus after Jesus died. In fact, Peter doesn't make another appearance until the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but even then, even then, he is still plagued by his failure. John tells us in his gospel, and this story, and I realize this is a long introduction to the story, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's important for us to understand what led up to it. John tells us in his gospel that Peter and the disciples, they're out on a boat, they're fishing. Remember, these guys were fishermen. A lot of them were fishermen. So they're doing what they're used to. They're doing what's familiar to them. Well, suddenly, Jesus appears on the beach, and he calls out to them. And so Peter sees Jesus, and he uh, jumps out, and certainly he's excited to a degree. We could see this on the icon. And also, it says that Jesus has a fish fry prepared over a charcoal fire. And so as Jesus talks to Peter following breakfast, a difficult conversation ensues between the two of them. And so that brings us to our scripture passage for this morning. This is John 21, verses 15 through 19. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. 
I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's no question that this was a really difficult conversation. But as difficult and awkward as this conversation was, it led to the grace that covered and redeemed Peter's failure. Folks, I want us to notice a few things about the story that we just read. Number one, Peter is on the beach. Where was Peter standing three years earlier when Jesus called him to be a disciple? He's on the beach. Number two, Peter has just spent the morning fishing. What was Peter doing with his brother Andrew when Jesus said, follow me? They were fishing. And then this detail to me is the most poignant. John tells us earlier, John 21 verse 9, that Jesus prepares this fish fry over a charcoal fire. What was Peter standing beside when he denied Jesus three times? A charcoal fire. You see, this whole scene is set up not to condemn Peter, not to beat him up, not to throw the book at him. Rather, this whole scene is set up to restore him. But Jesus, being the respecter of human freedom that he is, he doesn't want to assume that Peter wants to be restored. So he begins this conversation. It's really important that we note this. He begins the conversation by calling Peter Simon, son of John. Did you pick up on that? He doesn't call him Peter. He doesn't call him by his nickname. He calls him by his formal name. Because to call somebody by a nickname assumes that we have a certain kind of relationship with that person. To call somebody by a nickname assumes we have a certain kind of relationship with that person. What nicknames do you have for the special people in your life? In our house, for example, we have our four-and-a-half-year-old twins, Hannah and Noah. You never hear me talk about Hannah and Noah. And Amanda and I, we have nicknames for Hannah and Noah. For example, sometimes we'll call Hannah, Hannah Banana. We'll call Noah, Noah Boa. We like to rhyme in our house. Uh, sometimes Amanda will call Hannah Mama, or Cheeky Roo, or Lonnie. Sometimes she'll call Noah Bubsies, or Buddy. And of course, sometimes Amanda and I will call each other Sweetie. But these are not names that we go by outside of our family. To call somebody by nickname assumes that you have a certain kind of relationship with that person. Jesus calls Peter Simon, son of John, almost as if to say, hey, I don't want to assume that we have the same kind of relationship that we did just before the crucifixion. So here we are in the beach, like we were three years ago. We're going to do this all over. And then notice the question that he asked. This is from verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is the only time Jesus says more than these. These what? He doesn't finish the sentence. What are the these that Jesus is referring to? Now, there's some debate about this among interpreters of the Bible. Um, some people think that Jesus is talking about Peter's fishing gear. Because remember, Peter was a fisherman. He had gone back to fishing. And so Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your life as a fisherman? Because once again, I am asking you to give up this life. However, 
I think the more likely interpretation is that Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because remember what Peter said on Holy Thursday just before the crucifixion? Jesus, even if all these other guys desert you and abandon you, I never will. I will follow you wherever you go, even if it leads me to death. And so Jesus is asking, I think in kind of a playful way, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And check out how Peter responds. Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than the other disciples love you. He doesn't play the comparison game anymore. Instead, he simply says, I love you, and he leaves it at that. At some point, we recognize that something has shifted in Peter. His failure has grounded him, and it's humbled him. It's made him less cocky, less arrogant. Failure has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Failure has a way of grounding us and humbling us. Um, last week in a sermon, Pastor Will mentioned Abraham Lincoln. Well, uh, I was doing some reading on George Washington, our nation's first president. And historians tell us that Washington also started out a bit cocky and arrogant, but then he had a, a series of setbacks and failures. He had romantic failures with women who were not interested. He had political failures. He had military failures. And these failures actually made him into a better leader. Failure has this way of humbling us and grounding us. But there's also something else really important to notice in this story. The number of times that Jesus poses this question, do you love me? He doesn't ask it once or twice. He asks it three times. But why would Jesus ask the same question three times? Especially given the fact that it makes Peter feel bad. Does Jesus have a hard time hearing what's going on? No, he's inviting Peter to reenact his moment of failure because only then can Peter experience true healing. Not once, but three times, Peter stood by the charcoal fire and denied his Lord. Now not once, but three times, Peter again stands by the charcoal fire, only this time he professes his love, his devotion, his commitment. In other words, Jesus takes Peter's worst failure and by grace, he turns it into his greatest opportunity. Warren Bennis was a leadership guru. And he writes about this promising junior executive at IBM who had a lot of gifts, a lot of skills, a lot of promise, but he was involved in a risky venture for the company. He made a really foolish decision. And he ended up losing $10 million dollars of IBM's money in the gamble. So he was summoned into the office of Tom Watson Jr., who led IBM for a number of years, and the guy was so embarrassed, he just blurted out, well, Mr. Watson, I guess you're asking for my resignation. So here it is. I resign effective immediately. And Watson burst out laughing. And he said, why are you laughing? He said, resignation? What are you talking about? I've just invested $10 million training you. I can't afford your resignation. Peter expects Jesus to call for his resignation, but what does Jesus do? Jesus makes Peter a leader in the church. Folks, be encouraged by this. Be inspired by this. Be filled with hope by this. That Jesus, this is how Jesus responds to you and me. That Jesus does not see us as the summation of our failures, our screw-ups, our setbacks, our terrible mistakes, our poor attempts at discipleship. Instead, Jesus sees the potential and the promise, and he offers us the grace that not only covers our failure, 
not only redeems our failure, but also restores us and puts us back on the right path. I love what Jesus says to Peter at the very end of this passage, the very same words that he spoke to him three years ago on a beach in Galilee. Follow me. Follow me. And by the way, remember how Peter said that he would follow Jesus wherever he went, even if it took him to death? Jesus holds Peter to that statement. He says, Peter, now following me, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, following me is not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be difficult. Because one day somebody's going to take you, somebody's going to dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And Jesus says this to indicate to Peter that in the future he's going to die a martyr's death. And tradition tells us that's what happened to Peter. Sometime in the mid-60s AD, about three decades after Jesus, the Roman emperor Nero was reigning. Nero despised Christians. He hated them. And so tradition tells us that Nero had Peter crucified. But unlike Jesus, Peter wasn't crucified right side up. Do you know how he was crucified? Upside down, because he didn't feel worthy of dying in the same manner as his Lord. That was the courtesy that the Roman government gave him. They allowed him to be crucified upside down. In fact, whenever we see an icon for Peter, it's always an upside-down cross. A symbol for Peter, it's always an upside-down cross. Here's my closing question for us. Have you failed and screwed up? You're in good company. We all have. Come to Jesus. Allow Jesus to take your failures, cover them with his grace, and turn them into a thing of beauty. We've been talking about fishermen this morning. The story is told about a group of fishermen who one day after a long day at sea, they were having dinner at this seaside Scottish inn. Well, there was this one particular fisherman, and he was bragging about the size of the fish that he caught, and he was making this big gesture. Well, one of his hands bumped up against the teapot of the server as she was walking by to take it to a table. And so the teapot went flying, and the contents of the teapot landed against the white wall, made this ugly brown splosh. And so the innkeeper saw this, and he looked at the damage, and he said, this entire wall is going to have to be painted. Maybe not, somebody said. He turned around. There was this guy sitting in the corner, and he stood up, and he looked at the damage, and he said, hmm, I think I can fix this. In fact, I know I can fix this. And if my work does not meet your approval, feel free to paint the wall again. The innkeeper said, all right. So the guy proceeded to take a paintbrush that he had, some paint, and he began to paint over that brown splosh. Pretty soon that splosh wasn't a splosh anymore. It turned into the image of a deer with these big antlers. And then he signed his name at the very bottom. The guy paid for his bill, and he left. The innkeeper looked at the name, and then he said to everybody, do y'all know who that guy was? That was E.H. Lanzier. Anybody ever heard of E.H. Lanzer before? Apparently, he was a famous Scottish artist known for his paintings of wildlife. In fact, here's a painting that he put together at one point. God in Jesus Christ wants to take our failures and turn them into a thing of beauty. By grace, give your failures over to God. Just watch what God can do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that in Jesus Christ you are so patient with us. 
You are way more patient with us than we often are with ourselves. All of us fail, we screw up, we sin, we get it wrong. So thank you for offering us that grace that covers and redeems our failures and yes, makes them into something beautiful. This is something, God, that only you are able to accomplish. And so we give you all the recognition and all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.